This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. It's my pleasure to welcome Scott A. Shea. He is co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank. He's the author of two books, and we'll talk about them today. Scott, welcome. How are you? Thank you. It's good to be with you, Jason. Yeah, and where are you located? Give our listeners a sense of uh, geography. Sure. I'm located right now in New York, New York, just a couple of blocks from Times Square. Fantastic. The Big Apple. You did a TED Talk, and you've uh, written two books now, I believe. You talk about a variety of things, but uh, first, consolidation. I mean, the consolidation in the banking world is uh, pretty scary. You know, the idea of American businesses that will have this free, open marketplace with competition, Competition inspires innovation and uh, good pricing for consumers and good service and so on and so forth. The banking industry, even post-Great Recession, I mean, it's, it's more consolidated than ever, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think it's been one of the great mistakes of government policy over the last 25 years. I mean, we now have such over-consolidation that Four banks essentially control 60% of the market. And if you go to six or seven banks, you're up to 70% of the market. And that's not good for the American economy. It's not good for the consumer. I mean, and it's not even good for our national interest because when you have that few banks, if one of them is about to fail, frankly, we're going to have to bail them out. It doesn't matter what the law says. Well, they're too big to fail. That's the phrase we heard over and over again, right? <laughs> too big to That's fail. That's the phrase. Yeah. And supposedly we have legislation that, that argues it, that doesn't permit that. But, you know, look, we wouldn't entrust our country's defense to four or five military bases, yet we've essentially entrusted our economy to four or five banks. Yeah. And just as an aside note, and I, Scott, I bet you agree with me on this, but I have no idea. It's a tangent. What's going on in the world of technology is maybe scarier than the banking world. The idea that one company called Google can control 70 or more percent of the global internet search traffic between Google and YouTube is absolutely appalling to me. But that's another discussion for another day. So in the banking world, you give this example about J.P. Morgan Chase and how really a small business person seeking financing for their business would be able to go to, what, 19 different banks and convince some banker to loan them money, right? But now they can only go one place, right? Well, that example that I gave in my TED Talk about J.P. Morgan consisting of 19 banks is pretty accurate. And it's a big problem because you used to just have to convince one bank of your character and by the way, it's also bad from a public policy perspective, because now let's say that one big bank, J.P. Morgan, we just took as an example, but it could be any big bank, systemically makes bad decisions. Well, from the other side, that bank is now going to be in serious trouble. So we both have less business choice and more risk for the economy because fewer people are making final decisions. So it's a lose-lose proposition. 
Yeah, it really is. It really is. So couldn't someone, though, argue, though, that, look, when you get these big giant companies, there are economies of scale and efficiencies. And uh, I mean, centralization isn't all bad, is it? Or is it? Well, (laughs) let me just say this. And I think that there have been several studies of bank mergers, and they've all been pretty consistent. 60% of bank mergers result in a destruction of value. 20% in value staying about the same and 20% value accretion. That's not a good record. I mean, Signature Bank, and one of the things that we're proud of is we grew from zero, from the 85th hundred largest bank to the 40th largest bank. We didn't do one acquisition and we didn't do one merger. We just got bigger. We're today a $45 billion bank because we gave good service. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the most important way to try to grow market share. Right, absolutely, absolutely. But, but you know, I mean, it's not wrong for businesses to acquire other businesses, is it? It's not wrong for 95% of the banks, but at the top end where the mergers were allowed that allowed banks to grow to be well above 10% of assets of the country, yes, I think that was a public policy mistake. And I've argued that to members of Congress, House and Senate, and to the executive. Yeah, no, I I mean, I agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate on a few of these points. You know, anytime something is too big to fail, it's just uh, there's no way that could ever be argued that that is healthy. Uh, it is extremely scary, and it, it makes for corporate socialism where the taxpayers are paying to bail out these rotten, rotten behaviors of these companies. What about on the Wall Street side? I mean, you know, they call them banks, but it's not exactly banks. You know, when you look at the investment banks like Goldman Sachs, and so forth. I mean, there's way too much consolidation there too, right? There I look at it a little differently. I think that Glass-Steagall should have never been, and I will contemporaneously, I had said Glass-Steagall repeal was a mistake. I think it should be reimposed. Right. I think combining the safety and soundness functions of banking, you know, making sure that money's there, making sure that safe loans are made, with the more casino aspects of investment banking, which rightly should be speculative. You, we want liquidity in marketplaces. But essentially, by tying the two together, where the casino side of banking is funded by deposits, by federally insured deposits, I think it was just one of the many mothers of bad ideas. And it should be repealed. I, I think there was nothing wrong with letting a Goldman Sachs or a Lehman or a Merrill get big. And by the way, you know, maybe letting there be a uh, a wind down of a Lehman Brothers, you know, maybe in a little more sensible fashion, but nonetheless a bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Whereas you can't do that with a bank because when you do that with a bank, you end up destroying money because the deposits are on the other side of the uh, balance sheet for banks, which has an impact on the economy. It's not just the creditors who lose, it's the economy that loses. So combining those two functions never made sense to me. And I think that, you know, I hope in some near future Congress and administration that Glass-Steagall is reimposed. The Volcker Act was an attempt to do Glass-Steagall light, and it doesn't work. Did it, you say, it hasn't accomplished did you, did you just say the Volcker Act? Is that what you said? The Volcker to, Rule. Referring the Volcker to Paul Rule Volcker, that was part of, or, Paul referring Volcker, to part, Volcker, right, chair. the Volcker yeah. Rule, yeah. the former Fed chief, the Volcker yeah. Rule was yeah. put into place as part of Dodd-Frank. It has been implemented to some degree, and it's supposed to ameliorate some of the impacts of of not having Glass-Steagall, 
But it's one of those things that's neither fish nor fowl and doesn't really, to my view, I think Paul Volcker is a hero, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't work. Well, he's the only one that had the guts to break the back of inflation and make America take the hard medicine for a while. It did work. It did work. Talk to us a little bit more. I don't think people really have an understanding of Glass-Steagall and the real impact of that. So give us a little history lesson on that, if you would. Like, you know, when did it happen or when did the change happen, I should say? I think it was the 90s, right? And it allowed the banks to get into what the brokerage business and then what was the real what was the real result of that just give us a little layman's overview of that if you would so the real the, the you've got to go back a little further in history than the 90s uh-huh. the in the 20s the banks and the investment banks were essentially there was no regulation even before the fed the investment banks and the banks were essentially together jp morgan famously did that himself when he was a person not just the name of a bank and he would use uh, depositor and creditor money both to finance loans and to underwrite stocks and bonds and to trade. When the great stock market crash happened in 29, people blamed part of the reason for the bank failures on that very combination because banks could fail because the underwriting of stocks and bonds didn't go so well. So a senator and a uh, member of the House by the name of Glass and Stegall said, can't do this anymore. So they passed a bill. And that bill was the law of the land until 1999, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And then it was repealed. Late 90s. I could be off in a year or so, but late 90s. And then the law was repealed. And so you could get Citibank acquiring um, Solomon Smith Barney. Um, You could get Bank of America acquiring Merrill Lynch. And you could get Goldman Sachs starting Marcus, uh, you know, and starting its own bank. And that, I think, has laid the seed corn for, I think, of some future financial crisis. So I think the sooner that we unwind that and let Goldman Sachs, let them go back to being an underwriter, let them grow, let them compete against Morgan Stanley, but they should stay out of the commercial banking, depositor business, and the bank should stay out of, again, the casino aspects of the business, the speculative business, even though I'm a big advocate of those businesses. We need those. We need speculation. We need uh, market makers to provide liquidity. We just shouldn't do it with depositor funds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's true. Not with depositor funds. Sure. Talk to us a little bit about cash, if you would. It was amazing to me. I was in um, Sweden uh, a few months back. I took uh, a group of my clients there, I saw signs all over the place that said no cash accepted. The whole country is almost cashless. And that concerns me. I mean, listen, I don't use much cash myself. But cash is a form of privacy. And I want the option to use it if I want to, you know, and I, I think that's sort of an important thing. What, what do you think about the, this sort of cashless movement? I mean, India recently demonetized one of its larger currencies. A lot of merchants in the U.S. won't take 50 and $100 bills. They won't take anything over a 20. What does this mean to all of us? First of all, this is a really important question. It goes to civil liberties. It goes to a lot of a lot of really core questions about us as individuals and as economic beings. And I wrote an article, I just, we can't go into it all here, but I wrote an article, anybody can Google it under my name, Scott Shea, S-H-A-Y, a cashless society, the dangers of a cashless society. The risks, you pointed out some of the risks, but the risks are even larger in a cashless society because once all of your money is digitized 
and the government, let's just take the government for an instance, can know every single transaction that you, Jason, do. Mm-hmm. If you decide you're going to a basketball game, a baseball game, buying gas, whatever you decide to do can be instantly known. Or buying a copy of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Or attending a protest rally. Yeah, right. I know. Or let's say, Jason, you put on a few pounds and that the government thought, you know, you could be at risk of diabetes. We're not going to allow your card, your chip, your whatever you do, your facial recognition to permit you to buy any fizzy, sugary sodas. You're just not going to be allowed to do that. So your card, your face, your chip will be declined. It's a way frankly, of having total control over you, because essentially we are economic beings. And the way we express our humanity, for better, for worse, to a certain degree, is through transactions, intellectual or economic, with other people. And once you no longer have the freedom to make those decisions for yourself, that's a bad thing. So I coin a term in this article that at the point where The government can immediately know every transaction that you do. I mean, you probably have notifications of your credit card transactions on your smartphone. Well, once the government knows every single transaction that you do, Jason, we have arrived at what I call the e-congularity, which is sort of my mashup of economic singularity. Uh (laughs) It's the point, e-congularity is the point at which we have the risk of losing our real human rights as economic beings. And mm-hmm. uh, and it's easier to imagine today than when I wrote my article several years ago. Mm-hmm. The technology exists for that today. The technology exists for real-time understanding of every economic action you take. Yeah, that's pretty scary stuff. Talk about Big Brother is watching you. That's uh, another of the many ways in which Big Brother is doing that. You know, it seems, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm just being too cynical, um, sort of strange. I'm On one hand, I think it's an amazing time to be alive, and I say that all the time, because it really is. But on the other hand, I think there are some pretty ugly things going on in the world. And one of which that it seems to impact me almost every day in business. And I I just, I get very discouraged by it. It, There seems to be this real lack of ethics and character anymore nowadays. What's going on out there? Uh, You know, you've written about this and and spoken about it a lot. Give us an overview of, of your thoughts. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's really something that I'm heavily focused on today. I mean, I just completed a book, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism, where this is one of the core issues that I deal with, which is modern morality and how we get our modern morality from the Bible. And in my book, one of the things that I do is I talk about when I first came to New York, the first year I was in New York, I got a ride downtown. I lived in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I got a ride downtown from a middle-level trader who kept explaining to me on each of these rides, remember, this was in the days, these were in the 80s, they were before you had cell phones and right. in, in cars. So we had people had to talk to each other when they, <laughs> when they were in cars. It was, you yeah. know, just incredible. What a concept. Um, ancient history. Yeah. But we weren't in dinosaurs, we were still in a car. In any event, he would explain to me, and sort of my cost of getting this free trip downtown from him, was he would tell me his philosophy. And his philosophy was what was best for him was best. And he liked rules that were very detailed 
because then he could stay as long as he stayed in the middle of the rules and didn't break any rule. He could make as much money or manipulate those rules as much as he could get away with. Mm -hmm. There was no sort of spirit to the rules. There was what was good for him. And by the way, he knew he had to manage people up. He knew he had to manage people down. He never would say, and he, he was the modern day Machiavellian in that he wanted himself to look good, wanted to do sort of um, uh, social virtue displays. But what he really wanted to do was to figure out how he could make as much money for himself. And whatever achieved that was good. Whatever didn't achieve that was bad. And that's really an idolatry of money. Mm -hmm. It's making money your key value. And in a way, it was sort of the reason it's I called it idolatry is because I define idolatry is sort of different than I think most people think of it. Idolatry to me, and I, def, I go into more detail in, in good faith in the book, is a set of lies about power. It's ascribing supernatural or super authority to finite beings, i.e. people, ideologies, elements like money. And we thought we overcame that thousands of years ago with the God King Pharaoh. But the 20th century was all about idolatry. You know, people, tens of millions of people marched to their death in China because Mao told them to. Mm -hmm. And Stalin sent tens of millions of people to the gulag. And why did they do it? Because they ascribed an authority or an idolatry to someone. And let me bring this home in a small, I don't want to call it a small way, but how we overlook that moral mistake of sliding into idolatry every day. The movement currently... Um, in reaction that started with uh, the revelations about Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. well, why did people give themselves over to Harvey Weinstein and think that they had to do whatever he did, whether it was in whatever manipulative way he imagined? Right, and because, wanted. They, because they ascribed an authority to him, right? He was an idol. So right. you couldn't topple, just like you couldn't topple the God King Pharaoh, mm -hmm. you couldn't topple Harvey Weinstein. He could make or break your career. And he did that largely to women, it looks like, but to some men too, mm -hmm. where they had to literally do unnatural things because we believed as a society his lies about power. And no one called him out. And look, the Bible is all about speaking truth to power. And, you know, the prophets who spoke back to kings and the like. And, and that's what we're so sorely missing in today's day and age. And like you, I really look at what goes on and I, you know, I want to cry sometimes from pedophile priests to red-handed rabbis to inflammatory imams. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens everywhere. It's happening in the business world and it's happened, sadly, in the religious world. And that's what my book is really all about, is trying to reclaim and re-identify important values, understand what idolatry is, and put that out there. And I think once you do that, people feel enabled and uh, you know ennobled to some degree to, to step up and to stand up. So how do we fix this? Well, I think the first place we fix this is by re-embracing the golden rule, which is, I think, something that both religiously inclined folks and atheists can do, which is... In our policy, you know, like every other bank, we have to have a policy of corporate standards. And, you know, it just got to be like other banks. I saw it was getting bigger and bigger. And so I added 
a line at the beginning, which frankly, for most policies, I think you could, I think you would waste tens of thousands of pages of bank regulation if you just put in, don't do unto your client what you wouldn't want them to do to you. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> well, I think okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you replaced tens of thousands of uh, bank regulations from the FDIC to everybody. Yeah, well, to the Fed. That's not that's not just true in banking. It's true of really any law. I mean, you could get rid of law after law after law if you just had the golden rule. I mean, hey, that's why it's the golden rule. It makes sense. It works, right? <laughs> it does, but then you don't have people like that trader I was talking about who was happy if there were very detailed rules, because then all he had to do was figure out how to get around those rules. Right, exactly. That's such a good point, you know. And this is what the central planners and government never realized, too. You know, you could look at this another way, is that they don't realize that the market reacts to things. And so every time there's a new law, a new tax law, a new minimum wage law, whatever, you know, everybody finds a way to get around it. You know, a good example that's sort of easy to understand is Obamacare, right? So Obamacare comes out and suddenly every 40 hour a week or full-time employee becomes a 30 or 32 hour a week part-time employee. You know, all these companies react to it. That's the way it works. So if you just had the golden rule, how simple it would be, right? It would be very simple. And and I think that the other thing that we need to think about is, you know, as we're entering an era, you 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 touched on Google briefly and and the like. But I think as we enter an era where more and more decisions are made by machines um, in all sorts of ways, I think putting morality and reason back in the center, it's going to be more and more and more crucial to society. I think it's very easy for technologies to be very very discriminatory. I worry about AI when it comes to credit decisioning, Mm -hmm. because even if you, and I I talk about this in the book, even if you, it's in section one of the book, even if you tell your AI and don't allow it to know whether a person is black or brown or green or yellow or pink or whatever, the AI is definitionally very, very, very smart. And it's going to figure out all sorts of groupings of people who may have similar characteristics. That's what these so-called fat pipe social algorithms do. And so you'll end up discriminating against people who there's really no reason to discriminate against them other than the networks that they have, their families, their other, their friends. And we could end up consigning certain groups of people to always be at the bottom of the economic totem pole, to always pay the highest rate on credit cards, to always have the most difficulty getting mortgages. Why? Because we could say, and financial institutions might say, well, we didn't do that. We didn't discriminate that. That's what the AI system told us. Mm-hmm. And I worry that we, that just like I spoke about idolatry in other ways, we could make AI decisioning. We could, just like Harvey Weinstein, we could impute to it a sort of super authority that's untoppable. Well, we have to trust our AI mm-hmm. because it's making the right decisions. Right. Well, that's why it's more and more important. It's as important as ever that we call out idolatry for what it is. We recognize what institutions and what ideologies and what technologies we're bowing down to, and that we fix that through, you know, again, I think a good first proxy is the golden rule. Mm-hmm. So these are the things, the reason that I think that as someone who is a believer, that we can't say, oh, belief is on one side and business is on the other. 
because where the rubber meets the road is, and Adam Smith recognized that, and the Bible recognized that just as well. I mean, if you can only read one chapter of the Bible, read chapter 19. Everything that we do economically, God is a witness. What's chapter 19? Chapter 19 of Leviticus. I'm okay. sorry, chapter 19 of okay. Leviticus, which is, in a way, it says, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. Every time it says that, because I am the Lord your God. In other words, just like Adam Smith had an invisible hand mm-hmm. witnessing every transaction, the Bible says, whenever you do a transaction, there are three parties. There's you, your counterparty, and God watching to see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, having that sense of morality is going to be more and more important when a lot of decisions are semi-invisible. Right. And you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that, and maybe we'll wrap up with this, but there are um, people who believe that you can just have this atheistic world and uh, have the government hold people accountable for their wrong deeds and, and such. And, you know, people, just like you gave the example of the Wall Street trader or anybody in any circumstance, everybody knows that they can get away with stuff. The government, even though Big Brother is watching, can't watch everything and certainly can't prosecute everything, right? When people have no higher authority than government, that is just a recipe for disaster, if, in my opinion. You've got to have people live in, you know, and I'll just say it, some degree of fear, maybe that's not the most uh, eloquent choice of words, that they will have consequences for their actions. Do you agree with that? Well, look, I'd like to stick with the carrot instead of the stick. Right. <laughs> I think if people have faith, I think if people have faith and recognize that every other person on this planet has some sort of divine spark, mm-hmm. or if they don't believe that, at least believes that we share an important part of humanity with everybody else, and therefore we have a duty, and those values are taught from an early age, I think that we have a good shot. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to be able to punish people who do wrong. They need to have punishment if they do something terribly wrong. But I'd like to start on the good side. Whatever it is, but I'm saying, you know, no higher accountability than the government, right? You know, I think that's why you need God in society. That's my point. I agree. I totally agree. I think even government shouldn't be all powerful. You know, I mean, that's why we have divided government, uh, something that, frankly, we've gotten from the Bible, too where there shouldn't even be one part of government that is all-powerful. I mean, in the Bible, you had the high priest, you had the king, you had the Sanhedrin, the judicial department, and you had the prophet whose job was always to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't want any part, you don't even want government to be all-powerful. You want nothing to be all-powerful in the end. Exactly, exactly. Scott, give out your website and tell people where they can find out more. I'd love people to go to my website, which is ingoodfaith.com. There you can learn more about the book. You can learn more about what I'm saying and get some links to that TED Talk and to uh, some of my articles. And if you'd like, and hopefully you will, please, please order the book. Fantastic. Scott Shea, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jason. A pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please 
please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.